We will again be back in the Gospel of Mark this morning, church, looking specifically this morning at Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, or at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. However, before we dive into that text, since it has been roughly a month since we have been in the Gospel of Mark, I thought that it would be wise to offer you all a brief refresher, if you will, concerning where we are at in the Gospel of Mark. So as we left off last, back in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, Jesus Christ, he began to teach his disciples at this time, church, what he as the Messiah came into this world to do. That being, as we see in verse 31, to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and after three days rise again. And not only that, church, but he also then began to teach his disciples, as we see in verse 34, that if anyone wants to come after him, that they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. And that if anyone wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ or a disciple of Jesus Christ, that they have got to be willing then, church, to faithfully follow Jesus Christ even to the point of death. Because if anyone is not willing to deny themselves and to take up their cross and follow Jesus Christ, but instead is ashamed of Jesus Christ and ultimately then rejects that of Jesus Christ, Well, then Jesus Christ, then, as we see in verse 38, when he returns in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels, he, Jesus Christ, then, will also be ashamed of them to the point that those people, then, church, will not be welcomed into his eternal kingdom, but instead will lose their soul and be condemned into the depths of hell forever. And thus, with all that said, by Jesus Christ to his disciples. For you've got to think then, church, that Jesus' disciples here at this time must have been a bit confused and a bit unsettled and even a bit discouraged by this. And thus, in light of their likely discouragement here, church, Jesus Christ then, as we will see in our text today, For he decides then to give some of the disciples here something that they can be very, very encouraged about. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this, Jesus Christ is worthy of giving everything up for Christian since Jesus Christ truly is the Son of the Most High God. Jesus Christ is worthy of giving everything up for Christian, since Jesus Christ truly is the Son of the Most High God. Therefore, at this time, let's open our Bibles up this morning, church, to Mark chapter 9 and to verses 1 through 13. And if you are joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible, then please feel free to grab and to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you this morning. However, if you do indeed take and keep one of our church Bibles this morning, we do then want you to read it, starting today, right here, right now, by turning that brand new Bible of yours to page 844. 
and by joining us as we as a church family hear the word of God together this morning. For again, we are in Mark chapter 9 this morning, church, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 13, where John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as, on, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. For let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, the words of the song, holy, 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 continue to ring so loudly in my ears this morning. Father, as we see the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, described to us this morning, help us, Father, to grasp the holiness of who our God is. Father, so quickly we forget who your Son is. We forget His glory. We forget His sacrificial love. We forget about His power and His authority. And we go running to that of the world. Forgive us, Father. And we stop relying on your grace. Forgive us, Father. Open our eyes this morning, Lord. Open our ears and soften our hearts to see the glory and the grandeur and the beauty of this text and let it encourage us that no matter we have to face in the here and now, no matter what suffering we have to face as we pick up our cross and follow Jesus Christ, let us keep our eyes focused on the glory that is to be revealed to us. When the kingdom of God is consummated, when Jesus Christ comes again 
and the glory of his Father, and with the holy angels. And we see him as he is. And those who are justified and who are being sanctified, Lord, that they will one day be glorified and fit to be in the presence of the King Jesus Christ forever. Let us keep our eyes fixed on that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this, point number one. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ clearly displays that Jesus Christ truly is God incarnate. The transfiguration of Jesus Christ clearly displays that Jesus Christ truly is God incarnate. Verses 1 through 9, which read, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So it's always good, church, to come back from vacation. And the first verse staring you right in the face is one of the most vexing verses in this entire gospel. That verse being Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Where after Jesus Christ says to his disciples in Mark chapter 8, That if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that if anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Jesus Christ then goes on to conclude this aforementioned discourse by saying to his disciples in Mark chapter 9 verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. To which you might be sitting there this morning, church, wondering, for what on earth does that mean? That some standing there with Jesus Christ won't taste death or die until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And to be honest, church, I can't say for certain I know exactly what Jesus Christ means here in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. For some scholars say that he, Jesus Christ, was talking about his own death and resurrection from the grave here. Whereas other scholars say he was talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost here. And whereas other scholars say he was talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD here or about his transfiguration here, or even about a combination of some or all of the aforementioned events here. Nevertheless, I tend to 
humbly side with the scholarship that believes that what Jesus Christ was referencing here in Mark chapter 9 verse 1 when he speaks about some scene, the kingdom of God after it has come with power was to that of his upcoming transfiguration. And I tend to lean that way because not only does John Mark here seem to be linking Mark chapter 9 verse 1 to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, as we will see in verses 2 through 13, but also because, as Eckerd Schnebel puts it, the transfiguration here seems to act as a preview of sorts, or as a foretaste of sorts, of the glory of the kingdom of God, or of the future consummated kingdom of God that will one day be revealed when Jesus Christ comes again, Mark 8.38, in the glory of his Father. Which takes us now, church, to the actual event of the glorious transfiguration of Jesus Christ which is described by John Mark this way, beginning in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, where he writes that after six days had passed, following the aforementioned discourse that we just discussed, that Jesus Christ then took with him three of his disciples, those being Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now, although we do not know for sure, church, exactly what mountain is being discussed here in the text, it seems most likely that it was a mountain called Mount Hermon, especially if Jesus and his disciples remained close to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which was mentioned back in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, since Mount Hermon was located close to there. Nevertheless, while Jesus and his inner circle of Peter and James and John were walking up said mountain, Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 2, was transfigured before them. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, was transformed before them. In that verse 3, his clothes became radiant and intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Or as Luke puts it, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Or as Matthew puts it, his appearance now was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. And that Peter and James and John here, church, were witnessing right before their very eyes an outward visible change to the appearance of Jesus Christ from, as James Brooks puts it, an ordinary human being to that of a divine being in all his magnificence and splendid glory. And yet, for as brilliant and as amazing and as dazzling as that sight must have been, For that was not all that Jesus' disciples here saw at this time. And I say that because as we go on to see in verse 4, there also appeared to them the prophet Elijah and that of Moses himself, and that they were talking to Jesus Christ. Elijah here, church, seemingly representing the past prophets of old, and Moses here seemingly representing the law of God. To which Peter then, in seeing all of this, he then says to Jesus Christ here in verse 5, For let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now we do not know for sure, church, why exactly Simon Peter here wanted to make a tent for Jesus and for Moses and for Elijah. 
For maybe it was because he wanted to provide for them a place to dwell. For maybe it had something to do with the Feast of Tabernacles, which was potentially taking place at this time, as you can read all about in Leviticus chapter 23. Or maybe even he just didn't want them to leave at this time, but to instead just bring forth and to consummate the eternal kingdom of God here once and for all. Nevertheless, what we do know here, church, as we see in verse 6, is that they, Peter, James, and John, were all terrified. And as we go on to see in verse 7, that a cloud then, church, overshadowed them, and that a voice came out of the cloud and said to them, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And that this is God himself here, church, declaring clearly to Jesus' disciples here, church, that this man named Jesus Christ here, church, is my beloved son, and that they are to unquestionably listen to him. And then like that, Peter, James, and John looking around here as we see in verse 8, for they no longer saw anyone with them, but only that of Jesus Christ. In essence, displaying here as numerous scholars have pointed out, that Jesus Christ is not in the same class as Elijah, nor on the same level or possessing the same kind of rank as Moses, but that instead Jesus Christ here, church, stands alone above all as the fulfillment of the law, as the fulfillment of the prophets, and as the Son of the Most High God himself. The Walther League Messenger Church once shared an article about the famous artist Leonardo da Vinci, where it noted that while da Vinci was working on his famous painting of the Last Supper, that he had only one object in view, that being that the person of Jesus Christ should attract and hold the attention of all who beheld this work. However, in one part of the painting... It was a tiny ship that he had painted with great care for three weeks. And when the painting was exhibited and the people came to see it, Da Vinci noticed that they all crowded together to look especially at one part of the painting where the ship was located. Just see how grand it is. For he truly is a master artist, Da Vinci heard them exclaim. Therefore, chagrined by this, Da Vinci took his paintbrush when they had all left and with one sweeping stroke blotted out the little ship declaring that no one shall find reason for admiring anything except for Jesus Christ. And thus we can absolutely admire Jesus Christ, church, and joyfully Listen to Jesus Christ, church, and place our complete confidence in Jesus Christ, church, and even take up our cross and follow Jesus Christ, even to the point of death itself, church, because as we can see so clearly in our text today, church, in the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ truly is God in the flesh, and that he's the radiance of the glory of God, the imprint of the nature of God, 
God, the image of the invisible God, and that in him, church, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For he is the king of the kingdom of God, the son of the most high God, and the fulfillment of all the prophecies and of the law of God, who will one day, church, come again in the glory of his father and with the holy angels to judge the living and the dead and to bring forth a kingdom that will have no end, but instead will endure forever and ever and ever. Since this man named Jesus Christ truly is God incarnate, God in the flesh, and Emmanuel himself, church, which means God with us. Which brings us to point number two. Christian, do not let the suffering of Jesus Christ keep you from believing that he is truly God. Christian, do not let the suffering of Jesus Christ keep you from believing that he is truly God. Verses 9 through 13. And as they were coming down the mountain... He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things And be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased. As it is written of him. So as Jesus Christ. And Peter and James and John were all coming. Down from the mountain following the transfiguration. Jesus Christ he then charges his disciples in verse 9. To tell no one what they had seen until he, the Son of Man, had risen from the dead. Which should not surprise us, church, since, as we have seen over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus Christ was ultimately the one church who wanted to define his messiahship. A messiahship that he wanted to define in light of his own crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. Nevertheless, although Jesus' disciples do indeed keep this matter to themselves. As we go on to see in verse 10, they were still left questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Because although Jesus' disciples here certainly believed that on the day of judgment, there would be a general resurrection from the dead, this whole idea of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead prior to the day of judgment was a concept that at this time, quite frankly, left them puzzled and that of confused. And thus they then asked Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 11, for why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And the likely logic here, church, behind that question from Jesus' disciples seems to go something like this. So being that Jesus' disciples here just saw the prophet Elijah at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, 
And furthermore, being that Jesus' disciples knew that the scribes or that the religious teachers of the day said that the prophet Elijah, verse 11, must come first. Likely based on the prophecy found in Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, that said Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. Jesus' disciples then, for they were left wondering, as Mark Strauss explains it, that if Elijah does indeed come first to restore all things, for why then does the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, actually find that so many people are unprepared for him? To the point that they would openly reject him and ultimately then desire to kill him. To which Jesus Christ then not only responds to their question here in verse 12 by affirming to them that yes, Elijah does indeed come first to restore all things as predicted by the prophets, but also by asking them in verse 12, for how then is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? And that although Elijah does come first to restore all things as foretold in the very scriptures, that so too does the Messiah then have to suffer many things as foretold in the very same scriptures here as well. And that he has to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And that upon him must be the chastisement that brought us peace so that through his wounds we could be eternally healed. Isaiah 53. And thus, the predicted coming of the prophet Elijah here, church, prior to the day of the Lord, for that by no means prevents the Messiah from suffering here, since the Holy Scriptures foretold of them both. And not only that, church, but as Jesus Christ goes on to share here in verse 13, that this aforementioned promised Elijah that he has already come, and that he has come in the person of John the Baptist, who fulfilled the prophecies of a new Elijah, or a metaphorical Elijah, and who was beheaded by King Herod, as they did to them, verse 13, whatever they pleased, and yet who still faithfully, Malachi chapter 3, prepared the way for the Lord, aka for the Messiah, Jesus Christ Church, who came into this world to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and after three days rise again. And thus do not ever, church, let this idea of a suffering Messiah, or a rejected Messiah, or even of a crucified Messiah, ever cause you to believe that Jesus Christ is not the Messiah, since it has always, 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 We've been the plan of God the Father, as predicted by the prophets, and as recorded in the Holy Scriptures themselves, to crush his son and to put him to grief, so that through his wounds the children of God could be healed and become part of his glorious kingdom forever. And thus, as we begin to close this morning... I want to begin with the non-Christian who is here first. And I want to continue by sharing with you at this time, non-Christian, that it is only by grace, 
through faith in the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, that any of us can be forgiven of our sins, eternally healed and reconciled back into fellowship with our God forever. And I say that because it was Jesus Christ and Christ alone, non-Christian, who came into this world as truly God and as truly man to live and to dwell amongst us and to save us from our sins. And he did that for us, non-Christian, by initially living for us the life that we could never live and that the law of God that we as sinners break over and over and over again each and every day Jesus Christ, he never broke that law once, but instead lived a holy and righteous and sinless life here on earth and thus kept the law of God in its entirety, perfectly and completely non-Christian, all for the very children of God. However, keeping the law of God in and of itself was not enough to save sinners from their sins. Since the price of our sin, non-Christian, or the wage of our sin, non-Christian, it is that of death. And thus, because of that, Jesus Christ then, non-Christian, this suffering servant, he willingly then gave up his life for the sins of many by being nailed to and pierced and crushed and crucified on a cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute, even though he himself never sinned. And it is only through these wounds, non-Christian, that the children of God can be eternally healed. Because God the Father, then non-Christian, accepted this perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on that cross at Calvary on our behalf. And thus, because Jesus Christ, then non-Christian, was accepted by God the Father, and furthermore, because Jesus Christ never ever sinned, sin, death, and the grave, then non-Christian, quite frankly, did not have the power to keep the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, dead. And thus three days later then Jesus Christ he didn't remain dead or buried in some grave but instead he Jesus Christ he rose from the dead and defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus let today be the day non-Christian that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you then in his righteousness, in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you will be forgiven and healed and saved from your sin and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal and everlasting life. And to the Christian who was here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, for as we've worked our way through chapter 8 in the Gospel of Mark, Thus far, we've seen, church, that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that he would be a suffering Messiah, and a Messiah who would ultimately be put to death, 
And furthermore, we've also seen, church, that the true disciple of Jesus Christ has been called to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and to follow Jesus Christ even to the point of death. In short, not the most encouraging things for Jesus' disciples to hear, which is one of the reasons why, church, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ at this point in the text is just so beautiful and just so encouraging. Because as J.C. Ryle explains, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ was meant to teach Jesus' disciples that though their Lord was lowly and poor in appearance now, that he would one day appear again in royal majesty. And furthermore, to remind them all that although they might be reviled and persecuted now because they belong to Jesus Christ, that they too would one day also be clothed with honor and be partakers of their master's glory. And thus, although it is so easy right now, brother Christian, sister Christian, to look around at the world and to become discouraged and to begin to lose hope, Since we are living at a time when sexual immorality is now being celebrated and when impurity is now being endorsed and when drunkenness is now a way of life and when sensuality is now being absolutely revered and if we dare stand up, Christian, or speak against any of those aforementioned sins, Christian, for we know that at this time we will somehow and in some way suffer because of it. And thus, in light of all of that, Christian, for I'm here to tell you this morning to not let any of that ever stop you, Christian, from denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus Christ, even to the point of death, since we have the guaranteed hope, Christian, that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will come again. For as Pastor Rick Enzel shared, There once was a man by the name of George Tullock who led an expedition to the exact spot where the Titanic sank back in 1912. And he and his crew recovered numerous artifacts from that site. However, before leaving, Tullock's team decided to try to raise a 20-ton piece of iron from the site out of the Atlantic Ocean, which they were successful in doing until a storm came and blew so hard that the ropes around the piece of iron broke, and the Atlantic Ocean reclaimed her treasure. And thus Tullock then was forced to retreat and regroup. Nevertheless, before he left, he descended into the deep, and with the robotic arm of his submarine, he attached a strip of metal to a section of the sunken ship. And on the strip of metal, he wrote the words, I will come back. George Tullock, which is the same promise, church, that Jesus Christ has given, and it is a promise that Jesus Christ intends to keep. And thus, although we do not know when he is coming again, what we do know for certain is that he is coming again, since he has given us his word. And when he, Jesus Christ, does come again, church, for make no mistake about it, for he's not coming again to suffer. 
or to be rejected or to be killed or to put to any kind of shame. But instead, when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ does come again, church, this time he's coming with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet in order to bring forth his eternal kingdom once and for all. And only those church who listened to him and who weren't ashamed of him and who placed their trust in him and who denied themselves, took up their cross and faithfully followed him will be eternally glorified with him. And thus fix your eyes then, brother Christian, sister Christian, not on the suffering that you may face because of Jesus Christ, nor on the rejection that you may face because of Jesus Christ, nor even on the pain, the persecution, or the affliction that you may face because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but instead fix your eyes and your heart and your mind, Christian, on the glorious hope that your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will come again in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels to bring forth his kingdom and to dwell in the midst of his justified and sanctified and eternally glorified people forever and ever and ever because that as recorded in the most holy scriptures themselves is how this story will end. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body continue to fix our eyes and our hearts and our minds of the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because how easy is is it, Father, for us in our weakness to begin to doubt the true identity of your Son and to then begin to put our faith in politicians and in scientists and in actors and athletes, songwriters and that of the world. And thus never let us begin to believe, Father, that simply because we have a Savior and a Messiah who died for our sins and who suffered in our place that he somehow is not truly God. But instead, let us continue to remind ourselves each and every day of the glory that Jesus Christ displayed at his transfiguration, of the sacrificial love he displayed at his crucifixion, and of the power and of the authority that he displayed when three days later he triumphantly rose from the dead. And to then let those truths, Father, only further assure us that Jesus Christ will come again for his bride the church since the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ when he will come again in the glory of his father and with the holy angels is a hope church that is absolutely guaranteed let's pray heavenly father Lord, strengthen our assurance, I pray, and the fact that your Son, Jesus Christ, will come again. And help us to realize, Lord, that when he does come again, he's coming this time, not to suffer, not to be rejected, not to be killed, not to be put to shame, but to consummate the eternal kingdom of God forever and ever. For every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and every knee will bow down to him, since Jesus Christ will reign as Lord of all. 
Let us not be tempted, Father, to bow our knee to anyone in the here and now to avoid suffering on behalf of Jesus Christ. But instead, let us continue to fix our eyes and our hearts and our minds on the one who saved us from our sins and who will come again for his bride, the church. For we will see him as he is and we will be glorified one day as well. Father, thank you for this eternal hope, a hope that is most assuredly guaranteed. Amen.